Get Stuff Farmer to Farmer podcast episode 118, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Danya Teitelbaum is the co-founder and co-owner of Queens Greens, 35 acres of fields and greenhouses in the heart of the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts. Queens Greens' specialty is what they call boutique wholesale, supplying restaurants, retailers, local universities, and regional distributors with certified organic greens, herbs, and a small selection of other vegetables. Danya digs into why they've limited their crop mix and marketing outlets and the implication that's had for their business. We take a deep dive in Greens Greens model for putting out a reliable crop of salad mix week after week, including weed control on solid seeded beds, and how they manage massive quantities of row cover to control flea beetles. As a wholesale-only operation, Queens Greens fills over 100 orders each week during the growing season, and Danya explains the systems they use to track and fulfill those orders and the administrative structure they developed to get everything delivered, even though Queens Greens doesn't own a delivery truck. We also discuss their conversion of a tobacco barn into a gaps audited packing shed, as well as their winter spinach production. And just as a point of reference before we start the show, since it's spring and we do get into some timing-related topics, this episode was recorded on April 19th. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. Also by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Storeitcold.com. Danya Teitelbaum, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Oh, thank you. So glad that you could join us today. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Queens Greens there in Amherst, Massachusetts, how you guys got started and, and kind of what you've grown into now and what you're growing and how your business works. Okay. I run uh, Queens Greens with my partner, Matt Biscup. We are located in Amherst, Massachusetts. We also farm, we farm on two separate pieces of land, one in Amherst and one the next town over in Sunderland. We grow about 35 acres of vegetables, uh, the majority of which is baby salad greens and other baby greens, baby arugula and baby spinach and a couple different salad mixes. We also grow full, like mature greens. We grow lettuce heads, bunched greens of a wide variety. We grow a wide variety of culinary herbs and we grow tomatoes. And in the winter, we have about an acre of uh, hoop houses and we grow spinach all winter. We sell everything wholesale to a variety of outlets. And I guess that is pretty much the general story. When you talk about your crop mix of, you know, really salad greens, herbs, and tomatoes, you know, you, you're not doing a bunch of root crops. You're not growing a bunch of broccoli. Uh, you talk about your sales yeah. outlets, not being at farmer's markets, not doing a CSA. That actually makes you a fairly unusual person in the organic market farming world. Absolutely. And I would say we actually do grow a small amount of bunched roots. Um, we grow a small amount of bunched radishes, hakari, and dalliums, um, but it's fairly minor and certainly no storage roots and you know nothing like that. So. 
But yeah, it's definitely a very unusual business model for a farm of our size and for being a certified organic farm. Since we got to this, um, we used to sell stuff um, exclusively at farmers markets. So we've this has been sort of a 180 shift to being exclusively from exclusively direct market to exclusively wholesale. And I would say that the shift happened for a variety of reasons. Um, first, this is our We've only been exclusively wholesale for three years. So I don't have a huge wealth of experience to go on at this yet. <laughs> But we are in a, the, we're in the Pioneer Valley uh, where there's a huge amount of uh, vegetable farms. This is a very rich agricultural valley where we are also well situated to a lot of markets. Pioneer Valley is fairly unique in that is a large agricultural valley for um, the Northeast. Um, and yet it's really not rural. We are, there's a lot of people who live in the valley. There's a lot of colleges. We are about two hours from Boston, three hours from New York City, you know, not far from, from Worcester, from Portland, Maine, from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so there's a huge amount of um, sales, opportunity both locally and within, you know, a, a reasonable drive. Our farm is located surrounded by uh, vegetable farms much larger um, than our own. So we are uh, kind of right in the middle of a large amount of produce trucking routes of distribution companies of all sizes. So a big part of our move to wholesale is that our location suits it very well. We are We work with some distribution companies, and we are definitely a very small farm for them to be working with, but we're right next to large farms that they pick up from anyway. So we've been able to work with customers who normally wouldn't necessarily work, go out of their way to work with, you know, a small organic farm because it's easy for them. And then it adds diversity, you know, to their product line. There's also a large amount of small distribution companies um, that we have great partnerships with that are focused, a lot of them, on basically like a farm-to-table uh, distribution companies. And since we are kind of in the heart of the Pioneer Valley, they are, again, driving by our place all the time. So it's been very easy for us to make those connections. And then a another big piece of kind of this Uh, switch from farmer's market to wholesale is both my partner, Matt, and I uh, really like the idea of running a more streamlined business. <laughs> Growing a couple hundred different vegetables um, is not as appealing to us as scaling up and kind of appropriately mechanizing a smaller group of crops. Why is that? I like having the right tools for the job. That's a big piece of it, I think, for me. I like kind of having, being at scale enough at certain, on certain crops that we are able to invest in tools and systems to make it efficient. You know, at our scale, you know, kind of the, I feel like, you know, 30 plus acre farm, if we were growing, you know, kind of a, the full range of crops that we would be doing if we were, you know, doing a CSA or something, we'd be running our farm probably with a lot less equipment and a lot less mechanization and probably a lot more labor. Also, it's, it was sort of a, a niche that we have stepped into in some ways. 
in the Pioneer Valley, there's a lot of large vegetable farms, you know, ranging from like a couple acres to a couple, a couple hundred acres to a couple thousand acres that are, you know, kind of growing for wholesale, growing very mechanized, very streamlined for the most part, uh, very large volume with kind of farms that specialize in certain items uh, for wholesale. And then there's also a large amount of smaller um, organic farms. And because of that, a lot of the traditional outlets for smaller organic farms are very saturated here. But we started Queens Greens in 2010. In 2010, we couldn't, I believe we couldn't have started a CSA and sold enough shares without really pulling from other people's businesses. And I don't know if we would have had the draw to pull from other people's businesses anyway. Um, and our farmer's markets in the Valley are pretty, even though we used to do some of them, we're also fairly heavily saturated with producers. So we've kind of carved out a bit of a niche for ourselves that I almost think is like, I almost think of it as like borrowing some pieces from the two different agricultural communities in the Valley. Like we are definitely in many ways, a small organic farm. And we are also in many ways, um, you know, looking at some of our, you know, kind of really scaled up neighbors and noticing some things that they're doing that we like, you know, and pulling that into our business. So I think we're kind of um, almost like writing like a little niche in between in some ways, if that makes sense. And the niche that was, has been more open to us. Doors have opened more easily than growing a diversity of vegetables. Over the years, we've actually been becoming less diverse by the year. Um, so back in like 2014, we probably had twice the variety that we do, almost twice the variety of crops that we are um, growing this year. And that is just because um, the more we've kind of developed a niche and built um, a reputation and customers around that niche, the more doors have kind of opened because um, I, I think as we're set, kind of differentiating ourselves from um, other businesses around us. I'm curious, what crops have you dropped and what crops have you increased since 2014? Where, where have you, where have you done that focus? You know, you said you were doing, yeah. you're doing maybe half the crops now that you were in 2014. Absolutely. Um, well, we used to grow peppers, eggplants, a lot more root vegetables, both a wider variety of young bunched roots and storage roots. We used to grow broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. We used to grow cherry tomatoes. We used to grow more diversity of greens in the winter. Now we just grow, we pretty much only grow spinach in the winter. And let's see, we have really scaled up uh, spinach in the winter. Lettuce heads, salad greens, and other baby greens are kind of our whole baby greens aspect of our operation. Heirloom tomatoes, culinary herbs, and bunched greens, especially ones that are a little bit more unusual, but not really out there, like uh, broccoli rabe, dandelion, baby bok choy, the kind of bunched greens that aren't as normal as green curly kale, but not totally out there. <laughs> We've uh, really started to grow a lot more of. And and has have those decisions to focus on those crops been based on your markets or have they been based on on an analysis of the cost of production of of doing greens versus root crops or 
How have you come to that decision? Combination of factors. Certainly, um, some of it has been customer-driven, market-driven. Some of it has been um, what we can grow most efficiently. And some of it has about, been about what we enjoy growing more. <laughs> so I think I was pretty much those three things. And if something checks all the boxes, it's definitely one that we're going to scale up. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your production system. And, and I, I'm going to want to ask you about how you're doing production on, on the things that are more like row crops, you know, things like the, the head lettuce, as well as how you're doing the salad mix. Sometimes I'm like, how the hell do you get that? Um, Yeah, well, we, another thing that I think is probably unusual about our farm compared to potentially the farms of a lot of your listeners is that we direct seed a lot of crops. So all of our baby grains crops, which is the majority of our production on the farm, um, we are going in uh, to the field, you know, we're doing kind of basic plowing, you know, harrowing land prep. Um, we're fertilizing and prepping beds um, at least two weeks before we're going to seed them. We're letting all the weeds flush. Uh, we're coming in with a tractor mounted flame leader where we're just flaming off the whole weed flush. Then we are coming in with a sudden seeder. It does uh, 17 rows on a bed. So we're getting a very dense seeding of spinach, arugula, and then we grow two salad mixes. We grow like an Asian mix uh, of brassicas and we grow a lettuce mix. So and we're using the, we're doing a dense bed for all of those. If it's a brassica green, we're remaying it. So we use a massive amount of remay at Queens Greens. And we are, then we're really just coming in, um, unless we need to irrigate, our next step is really we're coming in with our mechanical harvester. We have a full bed tractor mounted harvester. It's a Ortomec 2000. And, you know, about depending on the time of year, two and a half to three and a half weeks later, we're, we're cutting the whole bed. You said that you seed it and then you're, you're coming in with the harvester. So there's, there's no weeding happening with those crops. We are, we do a tremendous amount of weeding, but it's all pre-plant. So once we plant, we do not weed. So we are weeding, but it's with the flame weeder uh, before we seed. Is it only with the flame weeder or are you doing other stale bedding techniques as well? You know, um, once we really get rolling in the season, we are, we only use the flame weeder. Um, this time of year, uh, when it's actually a little bit tricky to get weeds to flush, uh, cause it's so cold, I'm usually using a, uh, tine weeder, uh, for the first couple weeks of the season instead of the flame weeder, uh, just because the weeds aren't, they're kind of like just starting to germinate in the soil. They're not really emerged. So we just kind of ruffle it with a tine weeder. So like today I seeded this morning and I went in with the time leader instead of with the flame leader first. Wow. And so you're literally, you're, you said you seeded today. So you're literally going through and stale bedding and then the seeds go in immediately after that. Immediately after that. So like, yes, like it's part of the same process. So yeah, the beds get, or at least within the, within the day, but usually it's, you know, all in one morning, beds get flamed immediately behind it with the cedar. And by the end of the day, it gets remade. 
And so you must not have many grasses in your field, since I know flame weeding just isn't that effective against the grasses. We actually don't have many grasses. So that's a big help, <laughs> I think for sure. Um, all the land that we farm has been in agricultural production for long before us. And um, they're really, it's heavily worked soil. So we do not have, occasionally on like, you know, the first foot of the beds on the very end, there's a little bit of grass, but that's about it. Well, and when you, and, and when you've got 30 acres of vegetables, you know, one of the nice things I think is, I mean, you want those ends of the beds, they add up, but if you have to throw away the first foot, cause it's got a little grass in it, it's not like it's a make or break deal for the farm. Absolutely. Which we do often, like if, um, you know, the grass, if the beds are like a little messy, like we'll definitely start harvesting a couple of feet in or, you know, wherever we need to. Yeah. This time of year though, because we can't come in with the flame weeder. So far we've been lucky. <laughs> in the last couple of springs that we've ended up with some pretty clean early beds of salad grains and spinach. The spring feels a little bit extra chilly. So I'm a little nervous actually about the cleanliness of our early green beds that I'm feeding right now, but we'll find out. And I was going to say, you know, I mean, I'm here in the Midwest, so I don't know exactly what you guys are dealing with in the Northeast as far as, as weather the last few years, but like here, you know, it's been, it's been really wet and the weather has been really erratic. And, and I was, I, yeah, I, do you guys, does the whole system ever just blow up in your face where, where you don't get the stale weeding done or the, the weeds get too big to, to get in there and flame them effectively? Or, I mean, does it ever go wrong? And and, yeah. it, and then what do you do? Well, I don't know if we've been doing it long enough to know the, <laughs> you know, I feel like it's not, <laughs> um, so I feel we've been doing this dense bed system with the flaming and the mechanical harvesting. Um, we've gotten here in stages. So as I said, Queens Green started in 2010. Um, we started growing a fair amount of kind of year round greens. 2013 was kind of our first, you know, salad greens, like every week of the year, like straight through the summer year. And so it hasn't been a huge amount of years, but we, so far we've harvested greens we and salad greens every week of the growing season. So, so far it's working out. It certainly takes a huge amount of focus. You know, the fact that we have a fairly streamlined crop mix lends itself to doing greens like this. Um, you know, the greens really like the greens are a tight schedule. We plant them twice a week and it's, you know, a big process. We make beds two weeks out, you know, once a week, we have to harvest, you know, a full succession, you know, in the moment. So I better have had, you know, at least the majority of it sold in time. Like the greens are, are such a tight schedule that they really set the rhythm for the farm and they really are, um, they take a huge amount of focus. So I think that, yeah, so far we've been able to successfully make it work the majority of the time. And I think that it's a lot of it is due to we've made it the focus of our farm. So we can put, we can kind of make the rest of the farm run around the rhythms that the baby grain set. So you've got, you've got the management systems as well as having the tools and, and the, the time resource available that you need to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the salad greens are, it's interesting because it's management wise, like it's a, it's the largest component of the production on our farm. Yet it also, you know, in the field, until it hits the washroom, uh, requires very little labor. Everything 
and require the salad greens require very little labor in terms of our hired labor. Um, really, the salad greens production in the field is really me, my partner Matt, and one of our employees um, who's more of an, in more of a tractor operator position. Then the three of us, um, you know, really do everything that has to do with the growing of the salad grains. And then in the washroom and the harvesting of the salad grains. Then obviously in the washroom, it takes a fair amount of labor. And, you know, we have a crew of, you know, up to 10 people um, who are, you know, heavily involved in, you know, a big part of their day is washing and packing grains. Um, All the other crops we grow are all hand harvested. And so our heavy labor in terms of our crew and our employees in the field and then just um, are like kind of really light in a way on the washroom side. For our farm, part of what makes like the baby grain systems work and tight is that it involves a very small amount of people and that like we are focused on it. And we've kind of, you know, hand off a lot of the other crops to, um, you know, dedicated, you know, people on our farm to be harvesting lettuce heads and stuff so that I am like harvesting the greens, seeing how they're coming. Um, You know, I do, I personally do all of the seeding on the farm. And so I seed all the greens. My partner, Matt does, you know, and one of our employees does, you know, all of the bed preps and he's making sure that beds are made on time. They're flamed on time. And he handles all the irrigation on the farm. They're irrigated on time. So we've really kept the greens because it has to be so tight, like amongst really like me and my partner, Matt, manage the production of the greens. You mentioned irrigation. Uh, what are you guys doing for irrigation on this scale? Um, I don't know if it makes sense to talk about it because we're actually we're in transition from a, one system to another. I actually, you know, this is like this portrait in time, right? And I always think one of the great things that people yeah. find out here is like, Oh yeah, Queens Greens. They look like they've totally got their act together and they've got the system nailed. And then you find out they're like, Oh wait, they're doing something different next year than they did last year. And that means that there's, you know, there's always oh, yeah. room for growth and improvement. I think that's one of the big messages of the podcast. So anyways, I'll just leave that there. We do something different every year. <laughs> At least something different every year. We usually do like fifty things different every year. <laughs> so, yeah, well, our irrigation system that we've been using um since the beginning is incredibly simple. It is really just lay flat and sprinklers. Um, the sprinkler heads are pretty similar to like what's normally on the um, uh, like aluminum pipe, but we're actually diffusing lay flat um, in between. This irrigation system is very labor intensive uh, to get in and out of the field, to put together, to pull apart, to be you know tightening pieces of lay flat around. So we are. In the process of purchasing a new irrigation system that we hope will um, make irrigation a lot easier, uh, one-person job, which um, is we're, we're moving to a system that's basically like a water reel, but instead of a gun at the end, we have like a boom irrigation at the Whoa. end. Okay. So you're not going to have that same problem that you have sometimes with those irrigation guns with having the really big droplets. because I think that would be hard on a sal- on your salad greens. We absolutely could not use a gun um, on our farm. We really need like sprinkler irrigation. And we also often, um, yeah, so it's really just like, it's the use of the reel in terms of like, you know, one person can pull it out 
turn it on and it, you know, wheels itself back in and then we can easily move it. But at the end, it's going to have um, basically like a 80 foot long boom. that's just going to like have a lot of, has a lot of sprinklers on it. And we're in the process of putting this system together. So hopefully in the next month or so, we'll be using it. We actually talked on the phone earlier today and you said, oh, I'm in the middle of moving irrigation pipe. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, you know, until last summer, um, we were very lucky with weather and with water. Uh, until last summer, we barely, we really didn't irrigate much. So having a very low-tech, labor-intensive system that is, you know, hard to move and doesn't irrigate that much what, when it's in place, which is kind of what we had, we have now, um, wasn't that big of a deal because we would only, we had you know, we've, we were just blessed with a couple years of, you know, very regular rain. So we just never had to irrigate that much. And then last summer we had a severe drought. So we were irrigating just all the time. And it really, um, this kind of move to uh, develop this different irrigation system on our farm, it's really a result of last year's drought, especially because we direct seed the majority of crops that we grow on our farm sort of last summer was challenging with the drought and definitely made us realize that we really need a big irrigation system to be prepared for probably increasingly severe weather over the coming years. And with the, with the huge emphasis that you guys have on salad greens, what kind of a crop rotation are you following? Not an extremely long one. (laughs) So, yeah, we don't grow a huge amount of crop families. Um, so we're really doing, we are rotating crops, but we, they're not long rotations. And we are using cover crop, uh, both off-season and in-season cover crop um, to help break up uh, some greens. So certainly one of the nice things about salad grains is um, you know, between the time that we're, you know, making the bed to sail bed it and when we're harvesting it, we're really talking about kind of a five-week crop that the, it's there. There's a huge amount of opportunity um, for double cropping, uh, potent, triple cropping, um, and cover cropping, you know, in the, in the height of the season. So we're trying to work um, a lot more... Um, with summertime cover crops because we don't have a huge amount of crop families uh, to move around. We also have, um, we, as I said, we farm in two locations. Um, so that helps a little bit, but our two locations are pretty like windy, wide open fields. So we don't have a lot of like natural borders and wind breaks uh, to help break up um, pest diseases, et cetera. So You know, it is one of the things that we're trying to do the best we can with, but I know our rotations are not as excellent as, you know, if we were growing more crop families. Time will tell if this is a good idea or not. (laughs) Well, you know, I think you're, you know, if you started farming in 2010, I always, I always think of about, you know, three years is is when things, in my experience, kind of begin to fall apart if if things aren't working fundamentally. And then you know, seven years is sort of when the, the problems start to start to creep in if, if you're, you know, if you really are, yeah. you know, abusing the soil or abusing those rotations. So I don't know. We'll cross our fingers. 
Yeah, I really hope so. A lot of um, kind of the large farms that we're surrounded by in the valley grow, you know, a lot of them grow like one or two crops. And they kind of an interesting thing that ha- it's happening in the kind of um, larger conventional farming community around us is they actually have like many multi-farm land swaps going on. So it's very common for, you know, people to, you know, if there's like one big kale grower and like a big potato grower and like, you know, big squash growers that they will, um, you know, swap their land around like year to year. So, you know, there's, there's not enough, uh, sort of, I love that concept, honestly. And there's, there's not enough certified organic growers doing, you know, kind of streamlined crop mixes like we are, that we could start a organic, uh, land swap. So maybe one day, (laughs) maybe one day. I love that's a, that's a great idea. And I think just a nice little seed to plant there. You said that you harvest those salad greens with the Ortomex salad harvester. Now I I know what that looks like. Can you describe that on the radio? Absolutely. It's an implement that, you know, hooks to, um, the three point and the PTO of a tractor. The PTO, uh, drives kind of a bandsaw blade that cuts the salad greens and then they flop onto the salad greens like a, a, a moving belt that brings the salad greens back to a platform where we have uh, one to two people standing and kind of putting the greens into bins behind the harvester. So the way our operation works is the salad greens harvest is um, my partner, Matt, driving the tractor. I'm on the back um, with the salad greens, actually like pulling them off the belt into the bins, shuffling bins on and off the back. And um, last year, that operation was just the two of us did cut all the salad grains. This year, we're planning to incorporate um, one employee into that operation also, because it would be, we feel like it'd be a little bit more efficient to have a second uh, person on the back with me. uh, Because sometimes we Sometimes it's a lot to be putting all the salad greens in, getting new bins ready, and we think we can do it um, significantly faster with a three-person team. But with it, we can really cut, you know, if our transitions are smooth in terms of getting the bins on and off and coordinated, that's sort of where we lose some time. You know, we can cut five, 600 pounds of greens an hour. Wow. When you go out to do a typical greens harvest, how many greens are you guys cutting? It depends. Last year, we kind of averaged about a thousand pounds per harvest. This year, we are hoping to, we are planning on selling more greens. Hopefully that we're, we're planting for selling more greens. And hopefully our customers are on board with that plan. And we end up harvesting more than, a, more than that per harvest. Yeah, the, the whole harvest process would, would kind of take us like set up to finish, you know, two and a half to three hours. I was working with a farm uh, that, that we got set up with one of these Ortomec harvesters a couple of years ago. And, and it was, it was amazing what it did for the, for how the farm actually worked. Uh, you know, it, how all of the other processes flowed once you took that huge labor sink out of the salad greens. Did you guys used to harvest by hand or did you guys, you know, when you guys got into salad greens, were you like, okay, we're getting an Ortomec. Oh no, we we've, we've gone through the full the full range up to this. <laughs> so um, we started out with knives, um, then we went to the farmer's friend harvesters with the drill, 
which we actually still use those um, sometimes in our high tunnels. Um, and then we went to the Ordemac. So we we have been through the full range, um, you know, but definitely the, the Ordemac has been, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, a game changer in every way for the farm. Um, just as you're, you were saying, like not only for the salad greens in particular, but for how the entire farm, you know, runs. So it really has, you know, allowed us, you know, a typical kind of harvest day on our farm really is, as I noted in our crop mix, um, besides tomatoes, pretty much everything we grow wilts. So <laughs> we have um, extremely full harvest mornings where everyone, you know, who works at the farm shows up, you know, and is harvesting. and. You know, as I said, uh, me and my partner, Matt, and this year, you know, a, an employee are going to be, um, you know, doing the mechanical harvest while, you know, everyone else, which is at least seven-ish, you know, people are, um, you know, it's been freed up all of, you know, getting the Ordemac has freed up, you know, all of our other labor to be, you know, harvesting lettuce heads, bunching greens, harvesting herbs you know, bunching radishes, like we've really just, and so by the time we get to, you know, lunchtime, we've, you know, been able to harvest a tremendous amount of greens between all of us. And then a lot of the afternoon is spent, you know, processing salad greens. Like that's where a lot of our labor is going in the afternoon when everything on the farm is wilted anyway. So <laughs> it has really changed our, our flow and has been able, you know, to, to give us a structure around stuff. Tell me what happens with the salad greens after they're harvested. I, I saw some pictures on Instagram of, of totes stacked up in the field. I'm assuming you come along and pick those up. So yeah, we well, right now um, on the back of the Ordemac, we're harvesting yeah, just into totes and just dropping them in the field behind us. So when we're done with the harvest, yeah, we're like driving back through the field and like loading them onto a truck. I have certainly seen, you know, farms with you know, wagons and stuff, which would be pretty cool. We are taking out all the greens with you on the way out. And that might be a step for the future for us. But right now we're just harvesting into totes, picking them up in a second trip through the field. Then they're heading to our washroom where they get put on pallets by green type, you know, because in the field, um, in a normal harvest day, we're harvesting four different baby greens items out of the field. Um, arugula, spinach, a lettuce mix, and a brassica mix. So they get brought back to our washroom. They get palletized by type. They get wheeled into the cooler. So they start getting uh, pre-chilled in the totes. And then our um, wash, our post-harvest manager and team can pull them out of the cooler um, when they're done harvesting some other stuff in the morning and start washing them. And at this point, our washing is a lot more low-tech than our harvesting. We just use large Rubbermaid, you know, 100-gallon... Uh, livestock tanks, right? Yes, livestock waters. And we um, are moving greens by hand through those and then into, um, you know, wash kind of pretty standard washing machine uh, converted into spinners. And then we have a large kind of packing table set up 
So currently our washroom is definitely by far the most low-tech uh, part of our greens operation. And um, it works. So works for now. We're certainly interested in a little bit more mechanization in there in the future, but it certainly uh, certainly works for now. So your farm is GAPS audited. Can you tell us about your packing shed, how it's constructed and kind of how you got things laid out in there as far as like water supply and electricity and, and, and all of that. Cause it's interesting to me that, that you guys are using just a, on a farm, your scale, using something as simple as the, the rubber made livestock tanks for doing your wash process. Yeah. Our farm hub is in Amherst. So, um, we have, as I said, you know, land in the next town over in Sunderland, but all of our infrastructure and, you know, kind of the, the hub of our farm is in Amherst. So our, our wash shed is in a tobacco barn um, that was on our property. There are tobacco barns all over the valley. Uh, the Pioneer Valley used to be a big tobacco growing area. So it's a very standard, very simple uh, structure. 30 feet wide, 100 feet long. We've converted um, 60 feet uh, of it to our wash shed. So our wash shed is, you know, it's 30 by 60. Um, 15 by 40 of it is a cooler. And so we kind of have like a U-shaped wash area that's kind of around our cooler. Um, But it has a very long, you know, 60 foot, you know, wide open stretch. And that has been really helpful for us because it just makes like this linear flow of product. Like products comes in on one end and like by the time it gets to the other end, it goes into the cooler. So that has really helped us out a lot, uh, both in terms of gap because they like having kind of, you know, an in and an out of product, but also really like psychologically, um, I like having that flow of product through the space. Then the facility itself, I mean, is very simple. We have concrete floor. We have a, you know, we've put in, we we put in a concrete floor with really good drainage. The walls, um, you know, have to be for gap, like washable, wipeable, sprayable walls. So most of the walls are metal, white metal roofing. And the top part of the walls and the ceiling is actually basically like a white tarp. (laughs) pretty much it's like a waterproof white material and again that works because it's up out of that out of that main splash zone so it's not like you're having to spray it down every single day exactly like the first you know six feet all the way around is the metal roofing and we just did you know metal roofing because it's significantly cheaper than you know other materials not even roofing. It's like a thinner grade what you can put on your roof. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, it's just been very, very simple. And I think part of the reason that it has been easy for us to get this, you know, facility to pass inspections is because ultimately there's just not that much there. Like, but it's all just bright and clean and wipeable and well-drained. And so what I like that you've done there, I didn't realize it was in an old tobacco barn. You can't tell that from the inside. You know, so so it's Not really it's really clear that you've kind of built a an envelope inside of this older structure. You know, so you've got the structure that keeps the rain off, keeps the the wind off, and the weather off, but then kind of the inside that's the that are all of the cleanable surfaces. Absolutely, and it's it's a hundred percent like sealed off, really, from the other. Like we built, you know, an internal ceiling, internal walls, and um, 
you know, we operate year round. So our washroom is also like heavily insulated and, you know, it's a year round structure and the heavy insulation, you know, when we did it, I was thinking of it mostly for the winter and it's actually been wonderful in the summer because it stays very cool in there, um, even in the height of the summer. That's really nice. It's really nice. Keeps the hot things hot and the cold things cold. Exactly. And it's, it's worked very well for us, for sure. All right. So that brings us up to about the time that I'd like to take a break. And we're going to, so we're going to do that, get a word from our sponsors. And then we'll be right back with Danya Teitelbaum from Queens Greens in Amherst, Massachusetts. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company. Carl Hammer, the founder and owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises. A promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. and We grew great transplants with it year after year, first in soil blocks and later in traditional self-lax. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 10-20 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont Compost potting soils do just that consistently. VermontCompost.com Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. The BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, the rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You'd name it, and you could probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and most of the time when I was using them, I spent it thinking how much easier this would be with a VCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Danya Teitelbaum from Greens Greens in Amherst, Massachusetts. I always have to, whenever I'm saying somebody's name, I always have to stop and make sure I'm I'm actually getting it right. And Danya was telling me <laughs> it's, it's Teitelbaum like a tidal wave. I really like that. Yeah. On the break, Donya, we were talking about your your another feature of your packing shed and how you've set up your cooler to work with your distribution system. So maybe we'll use that as a as a launching off point. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were saying over break about about how trucks can just back right up. Absolutely. Um, so we have an outdoor pretty much on our cooler. Um, our cooler has like an indoor and an outdoor. It has an indoor um, kind of at the end of our product train. And then it has an outdoor that is back at the front of our barn. Um, so our customers back their truck up uh, to a large garage door. They open the garage door to the building. They're staring at, you know, the garage door into the cooler. They open that door and they, you know, self-serve their order um, out of the cooler. So our, when our customer opens the cooler door, they pretty much look for a pallet, you know, with their invoice on top and it will have their whole order. There's a pallet jack right there. 
and they, you know, load their own vehicle. So we've really set up our cooler to facilitate, um, you know, our customers being able to, you know, come at, you know, all hours and get their product by themselves. So when you say that, it, it sounds like you're doing most, if not all of your distribution through other people. Do you guys even own any trucks? We own no road vehicles for the farm. We have a sizable fleet of field vehicles. We own no refrigerated box truck. No, we own no farm vehicle that has to make it more than 10 miles in any direction. So um, we are not doing any of our own trucking. Um, we do manage, um, let's see, a large amount. So all of our production gets picked up by someone else from our farm. And a large amount of that is small distribution companies who have been, you know, amazing partners for us. Um, we really could not be building the business that we have built without some amazing, you know, locally focused uh, distribution company partners. And they come and pick up their order. Then we also, there are a large amount of customers that buy directly from Queens Greens, but we don't do our own deliveries. We basically contract out our deliveries to a friend of ours who is a trucker who does our local delivery route twice a week around the Pioneer Valley. So stopping at local restaurants and food co-ops and grocery stores. And we sell a fair amount to the, all the universities around here. and colleges. And uh, then we also work with a few different partners to get our produce from customers who order directly from us into uh, Rhode Island and Boston mainly. Um, so we do a fair amount of kind of contract trucking with different partners. Actually sounds like a lot of contract trucking with different partners. It is <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's everything actually. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, is that something that that you and Matt are handling, or is that something where you've you've had to bring in additional office staff to to help with that side of the operation? I handle all of the sales for the business at this point. Um, one day, maybe I'll share that uh, responsibility. But um, right now, um, I handle all of the sales, and I handle all of the logistics with our trucking partners. And we have a bookkeeper who handles like the receivable end of it. So we we do have an employee who handles like, you know, basically all the customer payments and um, keeping track of customer accounts on that end. But I handle um, sales, trucking, orders, customer communication, um, the whole, that whole side of it. I used to do it all uh, via email, phone, and like Excel spreadsheet which took a tremendous amount of time. We have started to use like a database program called Local Food Marketplace. And that has significantly streamlined the sales and process for us. Um, so that is a program where it's kind of like a shopping cart style. Um, I update pretty much continuously what we have available and our customers can log in and see like a shopping cart interface and place their own order online. 
So it cuts down dramatically on phone calls and emails in terms of collecting orders from customers. And then in this program, I can also format out of it um, a harvest list, a pack sheet, labels, you know, all sorts of things that I used to make by hand. You know, um, we've only been using Local Food Marketplace for about a year. So even, you know, a year ago, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, you know, in July, I'd be like, you know, making the harvest list that we needed ready for, you know, 6 a.m. Um, based on like going through all my emails and putting it all into an Excel spreadsheet and generating out what we needed. So now it's pretty much all automated. There are certainly customers who I who still order via email or phone or text. But even when I take their orders and just plug them into the system, I can generate on the back end all of the kind of the paperwork that we need to handle um, the logistics of running our operation. Everything that we harvest on the farm is harvested to order. We are not going out and really like bulk harvesting stuff and then selling it afterwards. So like in the morning, you know, when we are harvesting, we are harvesting based on orders that came in uh, and that are going out the next day to the customer. So our harvest list will have, you know, this many cases of grain leaf lettuce, this many cases of, you know, rainbow chard. And that will be going out into the field, you know, with our team and they'll be harvesting kind of exactly what is on the list. So having this database system has really enabled us to kind of run a business where we have, you know, a couple hundred different customers of all types and, you know, usually have, you know, over, you know, a hundred and I think last summer, like at the height of the season, we were averaging like about 120 separate orders a week, um, which would just be at this point, just extremely time consuming without being able to use a, a database program. So when you got off of email and started using more of a shopping cart system for the ordering, did you feel like you lost some of the personal communication that you were having with your buyers or when you were dealing with 120 people, was that already out the door? You know, in some ways I, I don't think it has changed much because um, you know, a lot of our customers would just email in their order. And so it was kind of the same thing if they just create a shopping cart, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have a, a dialogue with them. Um, they would really just like, I would send out an availability list and they would just email in their order. So in some ways, our communication hasn't changed. And I still um, regularly uh, check in with customers. I regularly check in with our regular customers and also customers who we haven't heard from in a while. I'm very accessible. Like when you when you call Queen's Greens, my cell phone rings in my pocket no matter where I am. <laughs> you know, And if it's a customer, I stop you know, everything I'm doing and talk to them. So, you know, our customers certainly call me all the time, email me all the time. So I think we, I don't think our like level, our level of communication has changed much. Um, I think it has mostly just made it a lot easier, both on our end and a lot of our customers really like it because uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of the way people, that's the way people are used to shopping. It's very clear. They know what to expect. They can go into the program and see all of their invoices and what they've paid and what they owe and just seems like it's been, you know, mostly a win-win on all sides. And I don't feel like we've lost anything in the change. That's great. I have gotten more 
evening time, not, you know, it's kind of just inputting data over and over again. So that's, that's a big plus. That's a big plus. I mean, that's, that's huge. Another thing that the database program has allowed us to do, which has been truly uh, a important piece for our business is it has allowed us to manage different customer groups at different price levels. And this has been, um, extremely important to our business because we have a wide range of customers from distribution companies that pick up at the farm in large volume of regular orders to, you know, the restaurants who order a small order that we deliver to their door occasionally. And before switching to using this program, it was hard to manage different appropriate price levels for different types of customers. Um, and it has allowed us to really sell to distribution companies that pick up on the farm regularly at a lower price level and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, restaurants that we're delivering to at a higher price level and having that all be percentage based instead of like kind of we, before we would just sort of like slap on more like arbitrary delivery fees <laughs> to different customers. <laughs> right. And um, that's really helped our business because ultimately um, we have found that customers do not like seeing a delivery fee and restaurants, you know, are used to seeing on a availability list, you know, from a distribution company, just that the service that you're providing of, delivering into their kitchen rolled in with the price. Honestly, like we found that a lot of times a lot of our customers, to be honest, are paying more now that it's rolled into the percentage, but they're not complaining about it. Whereas when we would slap on a flat delivery fee, they'd be like, well, I can't order because I'm just going to order a small amount and I don't want to pay the delivery fee. So it's been a weird, to be honest, it's been a little weird, but you know, it's been a huge kind of to our business and being able to service and work with and build relationships with different customers at different price levels that are kind of appropriate to their business and also like good for us. And this has changed not only our ability to work with a bigger diversity of customers, but also our thinking about the business because we used to think about... Um, you know, whatever it is, like arugula costs this much per pound, period. And now we really think about throughout the season, we want to average this price on arugula per pound. So we've started to think about our businesses at our pricing and profits about juggling averages um, more than being, you know, fixed in what, the way we're thinking about it. So are you adjusting prices for your wholesale crops throughout the season? Does does the price of arugula go up and down uh, from spring to summer to fall? No, it does not. How do you set those price levels? Like how do you how do you decide how much less to charge to a wholesale distributor who's picking up on your dock versus a restaurant that you're delivering to? Yeah, um, I think these are things that I'm learning. You know, this is relatively new. Um, I coming into running queen screens have had a lot more experience farming than with business and with, you know, really how to run this stuff and almost no experience, you know, before running our business with, you know, wholesale. So this is really, I'm 
totally learning as I go. And these are things that we're always trying to learn more and make adjustments. So, you know, right now I pretty much have like large, larger distribution customers that pick up at the farm, like, you know, twice a week, every week of the year, you know, are kind of in our lowest pricing category. And that is pretty much like what we have decided we, you know, need to be selling each crop for to be profitable. You know, so it's sort of us just being like, this is what we feel comfortable with on this crop (laughs) at this point. And then we have a kind of a category that is institutions and, and grocery stores and independent customers who pick up on the farm, like more like caterers and stuff, more than distribution companies. And I think that's like a, you know, an 8% bump. And then we have the, um, just across the board on, on everything. And then restaurants uh, that we, you know, deliver to the, to their door are like a 15% bump. So, I mean, that's, that's what we've done. And that is, that is also based on um, kind of knowing a bit about what some distribution companies are, you know, upcharging our stuff on. Because really when we're, when we're going to a restaurant, we're just acting as our own distribution company. And it's probably important not to be in competition with your distribution companies, you know, not to be offering a, a dramatically lower or crazily higher price. I think either one of those would be bad. It's extremely important. Um, and, you know, we're definitely aware of that. We both, we sell to customers directly that are in the sales radiuses of distribution companies that we also work with. So there's definitely like, yeah, we, we can't be selling to the end customer at the same price that they're buying it from us at. <laughs> you know, I wanted to circle back to something that, that you mentioned way back at the beginning of the conversation and that I noticed when I was looking at your farm on Google Maps, which is that you guys use a lot of Reme. And, yeah. and I have to say, if there is one job that I hate on the organic vegetable farm, it's dealing with Reme. And as much as you guys are doing, can you tell me about how that process works and, and why you haven't just decided to give up growing flea beetle crops altogether? Yeah. I love that you can see the Reme from the satellites. At Queen <laughs> Street. <laughs> um, yeah. I think a lot of people hate Rime, and I'll be honest, I actually really don't. I really enjoy it. Um, I have, and I have been since day one in charge of the Rime on the farm, and uh, we have a lot of new employees this year, and starting last week, I started training a few of them on Rime, and it's something that I will probably be personally doing at least you know, through the end of June uh, until they get really dialed in on it. I. I don't mind it at all. I don't know. <laughs> I guess we use a ton of it. So I guess it's good that I don't really mind it. I actually quite enjoy it in a lot of ways. And I think, I guess part of it is I've gotten kind of a simple little task that I have really done enough of it at this point. I mean, we grow, we grow a ton of brassicas in a heavily flea beetle, you know, environment. So we plant 52 usually successions of salad greens a year. So at a minimum, that's like, you know, 52 separate of Rime events just for that a year. Then we also are growing, you know, radishes and Hakurai turnips. And, you know, right now we're in the process of, you know, transplanting out all of, you know, our kales and stuff that we're going to be remaying. So 
We do a huge amount of it. And um, I think it's one of those things that I've done enough of it at this point that I've got the systems down, that it feels just extremely dialed. And there's something in it about that that just feels very satisfying to do. So I actually uh, very much enjoy it. So tell me about your Remay system that you've got dialed in. How do you get it onto the field and then how do you get it back off again? Yeah. Um, we use sandbags, but they're filled with soil. They're soil bags. And so we kind of just go, first we go through the field and we just drop walking by hand bags, you know, down the aisle where we're going to need them. Then we, we do it so low tech. We have the remake balled up kind of yarn ball style. We're not doing any crazy folding or anything like that. Just big balls of yarn style. We unroll those down the beds and then we just spread them out and tack them. And, you know, it's, it's quite simple, but I think I've gotten definitely, I've gotten it very choreographed where I really, at this point, know how to lead a group of people through, you know, we're putting the bags, you know, when we get to this point, someone starts unrolling everything. Then like there's a leading edge that goes out so that it stays square and then there's like a following edge that's kind of tightening and squaring it and I think part of why it's gone smoothly is because our farm is so remain intensive that I've just gotten it down to like a choreographed dance of how we do it. I suppose that doing it yarn ball style makes it relatively easy to get it back out of the field. Absolutely we just you know gather it into an aisle and roll it right up and you know put it on a truck. Another thing we've done that is has been very important is we have no every single piece of remay on the farm is 250 feet long so we have no mystery balls of remay (laughs) so if you're doing you know a 600 foot bed you know you're going to need you know three pieces for the job so it's just very straightforward we have three widths on the farm we have a two bed a three bed and a five bed and they're like extremely like labeled in different bays in a barn and like, you know, you grab however many you need from like the right bay. It's like labeled, you know, what the width is. It's a known quantity on the length. And so you can just like go out and do it. I mean, I definitely worked on a whole bunch of farms, you know, prior to starting clean screens where, you know, there was a lot, the remake was less a part of the operation. And it was just like a guessing game in terms of like how much remake you were holding, like how wide it was, how long it was. And I think we've just taken all that guessing out of it by just, you know, making it just, there's only three options that it could be. <laughs> okay. So if you're doing a, a 600 foot bed and so you come out with three 250 foot pieces of remake, if I've got my math right, that means you got 150 feet of extra remake. Absolutely. It just stays in the yarn ball at the end of the bed. We're never doing one bed at a time. So it's usually like you're doing, you know, like three or five, you know, 600 foot beds. Right. So you end up with several yarn balls at the end of the row when you do that. Exactly. And you would just like throw some bags on them. And, you know, it's just for us, it's just been a million times better than having cut pieces of remake of every size. And then are you burying the edges of the remake or are you just relying on those the periodic bags to keep the, to get it tight enough to keep the flea beetles out. We are only doing the bags and we are, um, we use raised beds on our farm and actually the, having the raised bed really helps hold the remake down because the bag is kind of like down in the, 
trench and just it has in the you know tire track which is you know about five inches below the bed four to five inches and just having that we've noticed has has really helped you know keep the remay on we're, we're really only dropping a bag every you know 20 plus feet and it, it generally you know stays on pretty well so Donya, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your winter production because anytime somebody's doing that, well, I we used to do four season production in Northeast Iowa, and it's always something that's really interesting to me. Can you tell me about winter production? How that fits in at Queens Greens? We have about an acre of um, high tunnel production. All of our high tunnels are, you know, our winter production is extremely low tech. Um, all of our high tunnels are off grid single layer plastic, you know, pretty much as, as low tech as a high tunnel can get. Everything we're growing in ground, you know, no heat, no light. Um, and when we started uh, Queens Greens in 2010, uh, we were a, the first two years, the first three years of Queens Greens, um, we were pretty much a winter only operation. So we were really just growing winter greens and selling them at farmer's markets. And at that point, we were growing a fair diversity of grains, uh, you know, spinach, lettuce, kale, mainly. And the past two years, uh, we've kind of scaled that, the diversity down to we're pretty much just growing spinach in the winter um, for, you know, all of our same wholesale customers. Winter is my favorite time to grow. Uh, so the winter part of our operation is definitely my, my favorite part of what we do. I love farming in the winter. Um, you know, I love having um, what it does to our, you know, yearly rhythm. You know, the winter is definitely a, we're just harvesting, washing and packing. So, you know, it's a significantly reduced schedule than the height of the season, but it's still, you know, our employees are still showing up for work. Um, I am getting away from the wood stove and the computer and, you know, harvesting greens and getting in the washroom. And we are keeping that constant um communication and sales going with our customers. So even though, you know, the volume is lower, our customers are still picking up grains at the farm twice a week. And that has, you know, just in a lot of ways really helped our business, both in terms of employee retention and customer retention and, you know, having something unique in the winter. Uh, there's, and we only do fresh products, so we don't have any root vegetables or anything. You know, the there's a fair amount of farms around that do winter production, uh, but most of them are selling, you know, have a CSA or they're selling at the farmer's market and they don't have a huge amount left over for wholesale. So the niche, I mean, we've found is pretty wide open and we've definitely, um, the winter has also been a time where we have met a lot of new customers who have heard that we have stuff available, you know, and they become curious. So it's actually been a great marketing tool. For us. With 30 acres of outdoor production and one acre of winter production, you must have a hard time supplying all of your customers with all of the greens that they want. How do you decide who gets what in the wintertime? That's a great question. I would say in a lot of ways, it's very self-selective. You know, the winter product is, you know, a lot of our customers are more like restaurants in the summer, like restaurants or distribution companies where the end customers, restaurants. Um, and, you know, the salad greens and the heirloom tomatoes and the herbs are really driving all of those sales. And in the winter, we really just have spinach at a higher price, a significantly higher price. Um, so the customers who are, 
really staying with us and buying all winter are the customers who that local product is important. So that really ends up, I guess in a lot of ways, just happens naturally. So it's, it's a, our local co-op become um, really big customers in the winter. A handful of distribution companies that we work with that are farm to table specific distribution companies are really important for us in the winter. And there's, you know, plenty of, you know, spinach to go around amongst the kind of self-selected group that um, kind of paying that premium for spinach is important to their customers. And also kind of the, uh, like the box share, it's not really share box, like veggie box delivery companies um, that are, you know, locally focused. They, they end up being big customers in the winter. So I think our, our customers really select themselves around the winter. And even though it's only an acre, we produce a, a lot of spinach. A uh, week and a half ago was our last spinach, winter spinach harvest. And um, we topped out this year at 18,000 pounds of spinach sold in the winter. So it's definitely not minor amount of production. All right. With that, Danya, it's time for us to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a word from another sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Store It Cold's Coolbot. Way back in 2000, the year that I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food co-op complained that the lettuce from local producers lasted for days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. So what was that about 2,000 miles pressure? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, this is still the number one complaint I hear from produce buyers. You have to get your produce cold. The difference between then and now is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FDF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Storeitcold.com. Danya, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I don't have a great answer prepared, and I knew you were going to ask this, so because I listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, really, which we've we've talked about the Ordemac 2000, the Greens Harvester. That has, you know, in terms of an implement, that has definitely been the the implement that has been the biggest game changer for us, but. You know, in a lot of ways, and it probably is, you know, my favorite tool to use. I, I love being on the back of the greens harvester in the early mornings. I love the actual work on the back of it. I love how well the tool performs for in our system. And another thing I, I truly love about the greens harvester is the way our farm is laid out, you know, and the way our routine is. It's really like a, a ritual, you know, four mornings a week in the season, you know, it, it's what I do is, you know, I 6 a.m. I'm on the back of the greens harvester. And to me, having that kind of ritual, you know, with, with a tool in the early morning is really nice connection with it. And besides your irrigation system, what change are you most excited about this year at Queens Greens? I have three things. The irrigation system, for sure, which we talked about. We are definitely, we're trying um, out a bunch of new packaging this year. And I'm very excited to see what that does for our business. And the biggest thing I'm most excited about is we've just had a, a massive turnover in our employees. So everyone working on the farm this year um, has started this winter or hasn't started yet. Wow. We have a 100% new crew. 
which is incredibly scary from a management perspective um, and poses a lot of challenges. But I am also just incredibly excited about the team and the opportunity that um, is coming with having a full turnover, kind of the opportunity to um, kind of teach everything from scratch. As I said, you know, we've been doing things kind of the way we're doing them now, more or less, you know, kind of for about three-ish years. And so things in our business have been changing very quickly. And it's sometimes hard to, you know, change the culture of how things are done, you know, with a lot of carryover people, even though there's also a tremendous benefit to having many returning people. But I'm, I'm excited to intentionally kind of blank slate a lot of the way that we do things on the farm this year. There's a lot of excitement for me in that, both in terms of rethinking how I want to teach jobs on the farm, rethinking how I want them done. And also, um, I just think we have a, a tremendous group of people lined up and I'm excited for you know the, the team and the opportunity that that is going to bring without all the great personalities we have on the farm so far. And it really is. It's, I, I've, I've had that experience on the farm and it's, a, it, it's such a wonderful opportunity to reset, not just, not just how things are done, but the, the, the whole feeling about them, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, the attitude, the, the approach that people are taking and just kind of be able to sweep all that old stuff. You know, that, that time you lost your temper 36 months ago has now, is now Absolutely. disappeared, <laughs> right? Instead of just being in the back of somebody's head all the time, um, you know, it's really, it's really a wonderful, yeah. refreshing opportunity. What's your favorite crop to grow? Oh, the winter spinach. I absolutely love winter growing. So that was kind of a no brainer, I thought. So, but, but it's no on the brainer, list. Yeah. So I have to ask it. <laughs> there are no pests. Yeah, it's nice. It's so nice. Not even, <laughs> not even like you, do you, do you have trouble with voles? We really don't. We're in a very wide open area. Um, so there's really not, you know, much cover for rodents. Um, yeah. So we, we really do not have, when we started the farm and we didn't really talk about this at all, we were um, at a different location and there we definitely had some rodent issues in the winter. Since we moved to Amherst, we, we really not a problem at all. Um, we just have the wind in the winter because it's so wide open, but so far that also hasn't been too much of a problem. We didn't talk a whole lot about your partner, Matt, but, but let me just ask, what would Matt say is your farming superpower? Oh, I don't know. I feel like you get him on the phone for that. I think that I, we really handled different aspects of running the farm. And I think that um, one of the aspects that I really handle I would say like the, the logistics of Queens Greens um, from the customers to the crop plan to like the employees, kind of like how all of the pieces are fitting together and doing a lot of the kind of communication and logistics. And, you know, I usually call it like the like the circus performer who like has, you know, all the plates spinning in the air at once. And that's that's really my role in a lot of ways on the farm is to like keep all of the plates spinning and to be, you know, on top of how all of the pieces are fitting together. And I think that um, if there's, if there's some superpower in that, I think that that's, that's the piece that I am able to 
I'm getting better at pulling off and I, I am able to pull off that I believe, you know, um, he admires that the being able to balance that many, that multitasking brain. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I still feel like I'm beginning. I still feel like I just have endless things to learn. <laughs> Not that much wisdom to pass on. <laughs> I think in that I, I still feel like a beginning farmer. I am, I'm always trying to tell myself to just, you know, keep holding the big picture and to like, you know, for one thing isn't going right, like just think of all the things that are in the moment. Donya Teitelbaum, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 118 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Teitelbaum. That's T-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-U-M. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, Please head over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, talk to us in the show notes. If you've got questions, if you've got comments, tell your friends on Facebook, we're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you do talk to our sponsors, because I know many of you are ordering from them on a regular basis, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. And finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I'll do my best to get them on the show. This episode, like so many others, was a direct result of that sort of input. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.